This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. According to the Asthma and Allergy Foundation, it's thought that up to 5% of the U.S. population has experienced anaphylaxis. Of these individuals experiencing an anaphylactic reaction, the fatality rate is felt to be just under 1%. But this is just an educated guess since fatal anaphylaxis is rare and usually not witnessed. There's also some evidence that the fatal anaphylaxis rate from foods is increasing. With us to discuss these topic is Dr. Jim Lee, an allergist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Jim, welcome. Yeah, glad to be here, Daryl. Well, there's lots of myths about anaphylaxis, so let's start with some of them. Um, I kind of hinted already at this one, but the first one, truth or myth, anaphylaxis is commonly fatal. That is probably not correct. Uh, when we think of anaphylaxis, we think of the most severe type of allergic reaction. Anaphylactic shock would be an example where someone you know, may, may lose blood pressure, lose consciousness, have a lot of trouble breathing, and it can be a life-threatening event or even rarely a, a, a fatal event. There are many more people with allergic reactions, people with food allergies. So I would say you know, five to 8% of the population might have a food allergy or a suspected food allergy, uh, but not all of them experience life-threatening anaphylaxis. Okay, next. If a patient doesn't have urticaria, they can't be having an anaphylactic reaction. Well, you know, that's half true, Daryl. I think uh, severe allergic reactions often include urticaria or hives or flushing or itching or all of those. But in most, in some of the most severe cases, when there's a loss of blood pressure and rapid loss of consciousness or trouble breathing, there may not actually be enough time for the urticaria to develop. Okay. In order to diagnose anaphylaxis, a trigger for the event has to be found. Well, that would not be true, so that would be a myth. And in some cases, the trigger, whether it's a medication or a food or a bee sting, is apparent and it's fairly obvious. Uh, but in other cases, it may be much harder to identify the specific allergic trigger. Okay. How about this one? Antihistamines should be tried before epinephrine in an early anaphylactic reaction. Well, that would be a myth or false for anaphylaxis. In fact, it's kind of a dangerous myth because antihistamines are not strong enough to interrupt or treat and impending life-threatening anaphylactic reactions. Uh, so antihistamines can be used for milder reactions, say some mild swelling or some hives and itching, but that would not constitute anaphylaxis. Okay. How about this? Epinephrine is a risky medication. That is typically a myth. I mean, like with all medications, there are potential side effects, but with a, a genuine anaphylactic episode, uh, it's almost invariably better to receive the epinephrine to treat the life-threatening anaphylaxis than to withhold it. Okay, and finally one more. Individuals with a history of anaphylactic reactions to eggs should not receive the influenza vaccine. Yeah, so that one was floating around a number of years ago, and it certainly was a, a concern for families and children, also a concern among the medical community because there were children and adults who were not receiving their influenza vaccine. 
So we at Mayo, as well as other people, have actually studied this and the the risk of an anaphylactic reaction to an influenza vaccine that was produced with some egg contact is either non-existent or minuscule. All right. Okay, well, let's talk about anaphylaxis itself. And what are the diagnostic criteria for you coming up with the diagnosis of anaphylaxis? Yeah, so people have struggled with this. It's one of those things, well, you kind of know it when you see it. So the most severe or typical anaphylactic reaction would be a multi-system acute episode uh, that may include urticaria, flushing, itching, chest tightness, shortness of breath, wheezing, maybe some angioedema, certainly drop in blood pressure or uh, syncope. Hypotension would be the most severe manifestation. Okay. And what are some of the most common triggers that you've seen in uh, the allergy practice for patients who have had anaphylactic reactions? Right. So there have been studies on this, and the three main culprits are food, medication, and insect stings. And are there specific foods that are more likely than others? Uh, there are, and they differ slightly um, between children and adults. For adults, the main allergenic foods are peanuts, other what we call tree nuts like cashews, pecans, and walnuts, uh, shellfish uh, like shrimp and lobster, and fish. Okay. Uh, for children, we would add uh, milk, egg, and wheat. Many children will outgrow those types of sensitivities. Do you see more anaphylactic history in children as they grow into adults, or can this develop in somebody who is an adult? Well, I see mostly adults in the clinic here, Daryl, and if I see an adult with, uh, say, a food allergy, for some of those individuals, those allergies started in childhood and have persisted into adulthoods. Mm -hmm. But we also see uh, patients adults with food allergies who develop the food allergy later in life. So that definitely can happen. Yeah. So are patients who have a history of allergies more likely to develop anaphylaxis? Or do you see patients who their first symptom is an anaphylactic reaction? Well, people with a history of other allergies, the, the term we use are, are, is atopy or atopic. So atopic individuals are more likely to develop anaphylaxis or food allergy or drug allergy. Uh, but certainly there are individuals who have food or medication sensitivity who do not have a history of atopy. Okay. So how does anaphylaxis typically present? What do patients notice first and how fast does it progress into an anaphylactic reaction? Yeah, so that varies. I think you mentioned hives, urticaria, flushing and itching. So the skin or cutaneous manifestations often are early signs, not always, but it can be. Sometimes some angioedema, lip swelling, something like that. Uh, then it can go on. With food allergy, there are GI symptoms. A person can, can have queasiness, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. Um, and then it can progress to the more severe symptoms, which are shortness of breath and uh, hypotension and syncope. And how fast do these symptoms generally progress? Is this over minutes, hours? Or how much time a patient? It's usually have? prompt or quickly, so we call these immediate type reactions. Um, and it depends on you know the person and the allergen. So for for example, we do see people who develop anaphylactic reactions to allergy shots, 
And most of those will occur within the first 30 minutes, often within the first 10 minutes, sometimes a little bit longer than 30 minutes. With food allergy, where there is maybe some absorption that needs to take place, it, the, the reactions can be immediate within minutes, uh, but it, it can be delayed as long as an hour or maybe on the outside, two hours. Okay. And how do you decide when to instruct a patient to try an antihistamine for their allergic symptoms versus go right to epinephrine? Yeah, so we try to take a very detailed history regarding the pattern of prior reactions. So if someone has a history of some ep episodes of milder symptoms, say urticaria only, some highs from, that come on from time to time, whether it's an allergic trigger or not, in those situations, antihistamines would be appropriate and it, it would not be a sign of anaphylaxis. There might be another person who really doesn't de develop hardly any symptoms of hives, urticaria, um, shortness of breath at all, unless, for example, they have a bee sting. Mm -hmm. So if they have a sting and in the past it's been rapid and the first sign was you know, urticaria, swelling, and rapid shortness of breath, those people should use their epinephrine quite promptly. Okay. I suspect that a lot of patients who have epinephrine injectors um, receive them from their primary care provider rather than an allergist such as yourself. When should we think about prescribing a patient an epinephrine auto-injector? Well, there are clear-cut cases where a prescription for an epinephrine auto-injector is appropriate, and many, if not most, primary care physicians can identify those clear-cut cases. So an example, for example, might be a youngster or a child um, with a history of peanut allergy and peanut anaphylaxis, and the story is very clear. Uh, maybe the there were some allergy blood tests that confirmed that sensitivity. Uh, so in that situation, it would be very appropriate for a primary care physician to prescribe epinephrine. Mm -hmm. There are other cases that are just much more ambiguous. Well, maybe it's a food allergy, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was anaphylaxis, maybe it wasn't. Uh, maybe it was asthma, non-anaphylaxis. So in those cases, um, often you know a specialist consultation can be helpful. Okay. Do patients ever grow out of uh, serious allergies to these same allergens that they're getting? Well, it is possible. To. I did mention that for children uh, with food allergy, egg allergy, milk allergy, and wheat allergy ca can be often outgrown. Uh, with a child with peanut allergy, usually those are not outgrown. Um, we know that individuals with bee sting sensitivity tend to lose their sensitivity over time, meaning years or decades. So it is possible for someone to lose their sensitivity uh, but not everyone does. Okay. You've mentioned peanut allergy several times. I know this is a very common one. Uh, is there anything, any late information out on how to manage peanut allergies? Well, there are a couple of new developments over the years. Uh, let me mention the, the development with diagnostics. So there is now a blood test for peanut allergy that checks the different components of the peanut, and that can help make a correct diagnosis because some people have a, a positive skin test to peanut, but actually they can eat peanuts without problems. So there's always some uncertainty whether it's safe or not. This component allergy blood test to peanut can be helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, but you may be referring to basically peanut desensitization. Right. 
Uh, so there now is an FDA-approved product for children where uh, the person will uh, receive increasing donors, uh, doses of peanut product, and some of those people can become less sensitive. I'm glad to see that airlines seem to be eliminating peanuts from their snacks. I mean, the, I would think the last place you would want a serious uh, anaphylactic reaction is 30,000 feet above ground, but uh, they've served peanuts for years. Well, peanut allergy is one of the more common and serious types of food allergy that's well recognized. Um, so a sensitive individual pretty much has to consume or ingest the peanut in order to have an, a, a triggered anaphylactic episode. Uh, but sometimes, you know, especially with children and toddlers, they're putting all sorts of things in their mouth. So um, I think opening a bag of peanuts in an airplane, um, that alone would not trigger an anaphylactic reaction to someone else in the plane. But if a peanut rolled on the floor and a youngster with peanut allergy found it and ate it, that, of course, would be a real exposure with some risk. Sure. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, epinephrine auto-injectors, because there have been some issues surrounding those. How many auto-injectors should a patient have on hand at any given time? Well, generally, we recommend two. Um, the main reason for that is um, in the case of a very severe anaphylactic reaction, Sometimes a person actually needs more than one dose in order to have the maximum chance of recovery. Uh, for, for other you know, instances, one injection is enough, but you kind of never know. So it's, you, the EpiPen brand comes as a kit with two auto-injectors. So generally speaking, we would recommend that someone carry two. Okay. And let's say a patient gave themselves an epinephrine injection and their symptoms resolved. Should they still seek medical attention after that? Generally, we would recommend that. And the main reason is anaphylaxis, especially one that warrants epinephrine, is a potentially life-threatening uh, event. So if someone improves after a single dose of epinephrine, that would be a good thing. But the effect of epinephrine wears off actually relatively quickly. So there are people who require more intensive care. The epinephrine buys you some time. Uh, but in the emergency department, even after epinephrine, in the most severe cases, a person not only may require a second epinephrine dose, but a third. They may need fluids. They may, may need blood pressure support. There's a lot that goes on with the most severe cases. So there are some patients who may respond to an epinephrine injection but kind of have a biphasic reaction where maybe an hour later some of their symptoms return? Yeah, so the biphasic reaction generally refers to uh, a second wave of anaphylactic symptoms that might develop actually several hours after the first one. So I was initially referring to sort of inadequately treated anaphylaxis that is very severe. Uh, biphasic reactions can occur. It's not really all that common, um, but absolutely, if someone has a, an anaphylactic event, um, they should be vigilant for recurring symptoms some hours later. Mm -hmm. You mentioned giving your giving patients a second injection. Is it in most cases is it just one that they need, or do a fair number need a second? Well, most cases will respond to a single uh, epinephrine dose, uh, but that depending on again the severity, I, you know, anywhere between fifteen twenty percent may require a second dose. Okay, all right. 
I know in the recent past, the cost of these auto injectors uh, was astronomical, uh, especially when you consider this is a life-saving device for many patients who have to have it. Has that issue pretty much faded away, or is it still a problem? Well, it's still a pricey product, um, but I think the issue with coverage and shortages has improved. Uh, part of this is because there are now there's more than one brand available. Uh, there's a generic product that's available. Uh, so nowadays, currently, if someone needs an epinephrine auto auto injector, they if they have coverage, they should be able to get one. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. There was also some controversy a while back about the length of the needle in the auto injectors. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so there were a couple of issues, one relating more to adults and the other more to children, so I'll comment on both. Uh, So uh, on the adult side, there was a question that for someone who is, you know, heavier, has a greater fat layer or is suffering from obesity, that the needle length is not sufficiently long to reach the muscle. And so there are studies that can show that that indeed is the case. Fortunately, the epinephrine, you know, still will reach the subcutaneous tissue and then the syringe is under pressure. So the ejection itself can actually reach the muscle and beyond, even if the needle tip doesn't. Uh, So for the most part, even if the needle does not reach the muscle, epinephrine is still delivered and most people will get a therapeutic benefit. The the other is with very young children, sometimes the the needle is too long and can actually kind of hit the bone. Mm -hmm. And so that has happened. So I think some care is is important, but even in those situations, um, patients receive their dose and recover for the most part. So ideally, you really want the epinephrine in the muscle rather than the subcutaneous fat. Yeah, so years and years ago, epinephrine was delivered subcutaneously by design, and it worked, but the absorption is is somewhat slower than an intramuscular injection. So there are studies on absorption that shows that intramuscular delivery of epinephrine works faster. Uh, So ideally, yes, the epinephrine should be delivered by the intramuscular route, but the subcutaneous exposure and administration still will yield therapeutic benefit. Mm-hmm. And the location of the injection, I think most of my patients have been instructed to inject it into their thigh. Is that the only location that would work for this? That, that is ideal. That's where the, how we give instructions. We describe the anterolateral aspect of the upper leg or, or thigh. And so that would be an, an area where the needle can reach the muscle, won't go through bone, um, and you know, a- avoids other you know t- tissues where you don't want the needle to t- to to hit. Okay. All right. Finally, let's summarize. Can you give our listeners maybe just a few key points of things that we've talked about regarding anaphylaxis? Well, it, if a patient is at risk for anaphylaxis um, through a, a careful medical evaluation, and so it's primarily in, in a patient case, it would be. Uh, food allergy or insect sting allergy, uh, then they should talk to their doctor about having epinephrine available. If it's deemed that it's appropriate for the person to have an epinephrine auto-injector, then by all means, learn how to use it, be careful and comfortable with it. And there are lots of tricks we tell people about do's and don'ts. Uh, Don't leave it in the car in the summertime because the heat will degrade the epinephrine. 
uh, carry it with you at, at all times because you never know when you're going to need it. Uh, there are inadvertent exposures to food, for example. Um, to have two epinephrine auto-injectors, if possible. Uh, people you know, leave it at home, they forget it, they only bring it when they think they need it. And to be comfortable using it, there are lots of instances where people don't use it correctly, and with an EpiPen, they'll inject their thumb because they're holding it upside down, mm. or someone tries to inject it into their upper leg and they hit their wallet instead. There, there are a number of unique circumstances that an individual will want to be aware of and avoid. I can see where some of this could be very challenging for young children to uh, have to carry these things with them. Well, if they're really young, I guess it's up to the right. caregiver or the parents. Um, and yeah, I think for older children, there's a balance between you know, how mature the child is right. and you know, uh, how careful they will be. Yeah. Well, we've been discussing anaphylaxis and its management with Dr. Jim Lee an allergist at the Mayo Clinic. Jim, thanks for educating us today on this important topic. Thanks for having me, Daryl. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.